When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The drive to achieve success, to reach the top of the ladder, that requires daily commitment. To achieve success in the face of constant roadblocks, that requires even more of that human spirit. Bob Gibson is one such individual. He was a man who didn't let a life surrounded by racism stop him from becoming one of baseball's greatest pitchers. Here is his story. Bob Gibson, Determination Defined. Today on Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Rounders, a history of baseball in America. I'm your host, Jeff Lambert. On October 3rd, 2020, baseball lost one of its greatest pitchers to ever play the game, Bob Gibson. He was a pitcher who played his entire career for the St. Louis Cardinals, and he built a reputation for being a fierce competitor. He was truly dominant during his career, and the stats and awards back that up. But his story is also about determination in the face of constant racism. Throughout his life, individuals and organizations, they sought to block him from his dreams, based simply and solely on the color of his skin. But Bob had that drive to always keep pushing forward, no matter the obstacle. And that's what I want to focus on in today's episode, that legacy of determination in the face of hate. I want to take a moment to thank Richard Goldstein of the New York Times, Terry Sloop of Sabre, the Society for American Baseball Research, and Benjamin Hotchman of the St. Louis Post-Ditchpatch. They all did excellent work covering Bob Gibson's life. Uh, in reading their work, it was a combination of their uh, content that I put together for this episode. So if you'd like to read more on Bob Gibson's life, I will include links to their works in the show notes. If you'd like to take a moment to support the show financially, there is a link in the show notes as well. And keep your eyes out for another way to enjoy this episode. We will be coming out with a visual story on our YouTube channel within the week. And I'll make sure to put a link to that in the description as well. Now, let's get on to learning about five roadblocks steeped in racism that Bob overcame throughout his life through sheer determination. Thank you. 
Bob Gibson was born Pack Robert Gibson in 1935 in Omaha, Nebraska. He was the youngest of seven children. From the start, Bob found himself without the love and guidance of a father, as his passed away shortly before he was born. His mother, Victoria, had to work long hours to provide for her children by herself, and she worked as both a launderer and a house cleaner. Now, thanks to strong family ties, Bob didn't become a latchkey child because of the single-parent situation he found himself in. His older brother, Josh, looked out for him and really became his mentor. Josh himself was an amazing athlete, but he had not pursued a career in professional sports due to the color barrier. Remember, we're talking about the late 1930s here. Instead, Josh decided to go to college, and he earned a degree, and he moved back to Omaha to help with the family when Bob was very young. Josh opened a recreation center in the local area, and he helped organize youth sports programs. Now Bob, his younger brother, attributes so much of his life to his older brother's influence. And he stated in an interview once that Josh, quote, led by example. He required no more from any of us than he gave himself. We were all, one way or another, a reflection of Josh, end quote. Bob kept his brother's lessons at heart that he learned throughout his childhood, and they really helped guide him as he grew up and faced some of the challenges that we're going to discuss. So let's look at some of those situations that he faced, those those examples of racism and outright prejudice and how he faced those and responded to them. Example number one, Bob's youth baseball team dealt with bigoted spectators on a regular basis. Now, as I mentioned previously, as a child, Bob played on sports teams at the rec center that was run by his older brother, Josh. As part of their league schedule, the team traveled across the Midwest to play other teams. Now, they faced squads regularly that were all white, and that brought uh, familiar racism with uh, that. So these racist spectators would show up to games, and uh, they would not treat Bob and his teammates uh, in a way that was acceptable. Bob recalls in his autobiography, Stranger to the Game, that it was common after these games for parents from the opposing team to come up and give him and his teammates watermelon to eat. After one particular match, Bob noticed that the parents and the town folk were standing back from them as they ate, and they were taking pictures of them while they enjoyed eating their watermelon. Bob's older brother Josh also noticed this, and he told all of the players to stop. And then he went over to the crowd and said, We're not eating this watermelon anymore unless you give us forks. Bob stated in that same book, quote, Of course, none of the other kids had ever eaten watermelon with a fork, but from then on, wherever we played, that was the standard. When the town served us watermelon, it had to be accompanied by a fork, or we were having none of it. End quote. What a thing for a child to have to go through, and what a way for his brother to respond. I think he really set the tone there. And uh, just another example of, of Bob learning how to deal with these types of situations uh, in a way that didn't call for violence and um, taught him how to handle it later on in life as well. Example number two, Bob was blocked 
from playing on his high school baseball team. During Bob's childhood and adolescent years, he spent much of his time at that recreation center with his brother, and the two sports he caught on to the most, the ones that he enjoyed playing the most, were basketball and baseball. Now, on the diamond, he played shortstop, and he pitched on occasion. At age 16, he led his rec center's baseball team to the American Legion City Championship, and he was selected to the all-city team as a utility player. His baseball career, though, even though it was off to soaring heights by the time he was 16, it took a back seat during his junior year of high school because his high school blocked him from being able to try out for the team. Now, the official reason when Bob inquired was that he had reported a day late and he lost his opportunity to try out. But it later came out that the coach of the team didn't want any black players playing for him. So Bob, instead of giving up on competing in sports altogether or being jaded by the situation, he stepped away from baseball and he got more involved in playing basketball and track and field. And during his time playing those sports, of course, he excelled at them and he won several accolades and, and he set records, state records, for, especially in track and field. But uh, baseball eventually did come back into his life. And during his senior year, that racist high school coach that didn't want any players who were non-white playing on his team was let go. And another individual came in to coach the squad, and he allowed integration to occur. So Bob was able to continue playing baseball during his senior year, and he easily won a spot on that team. He went on to play outfield and pitcher during his senior year, and he finished second in batting average among all city players, hitting 368. His high school won the intercity tournament, and Bob was selected to the all-city team again as a utility player. Example number three. Bob's first MLB manager mistreated him and other black teammates. Bob's first season in the majors was in 1959. He was with the St. Louis Cardinals, and he ended up spending the entire uh, entirety of his career with St. Louis. Now, when he started off in the majors, the team's manager at the time, Solly Hemus, hope I'm pronouncing that right, had a reputation for being both mean-spirited to his players and stingy on playing time for any black players on the squad. Bob ended up in the manager's heights almost immediately and was never really able to get out of them. Let me give you some examples of how he mistreated his players, especially the African-American players on the squad. To motivate his players, he would constantly hurl racial epithets at them, whether it was during actual games or on the practice field or in the locker room. He would tell Gibson often not to bother attending pregame strategy meetings as he wouldn't benefit from him being there. He would tell Bob Gibson and his fellow teammate Kurt Flood that they would never make it in the majors. Bob stated in an interview that, quote, I made the team in 1959, but Hemus had convinced me that I wasn't any damn good, and consequently, I wasn't, end quote. Hemus regularly called Bob by other players' names, all of whom were black. He would mix them up on purpose just to try and upset them. Gibson again recalled those events that he faced in the clubhouse on a regular basis, 
and he said, quote, he kept calling me Bridges, confusing me with Marshall Bridges, who was several years older than me. He was skinnier and he pitched left-handed, but he was black. So Solly got that much right, end quote. Despite praise from other teams early on in his career for his superior ability, Gibson found himself played sparingly by his manager during his first two seasons in the MLB. He was shuttled back and forth between St. Louis and their minor league clubs in Omaha and Rochester. And it was one of those things everybody could see the talent, and they knew that there was a reason other than that why Bob wasn't being played. In fact, his teammate Kurt Flood once said about Bob, quote, Bob could throw as hard as any man alive, but he must never used him if someone else was available, end quote. In 1961, two years after Bob entered the league, Hemus was fired mid-season, and he was replaced with manager Johnny Keane. Keane immediately inserted Gibson in as a full-time starter, and Gibson responded, of course, immediately. His record for the remainder of that season was 11-6, and and he showed immediately what he could do when he was given the opportunity. Example number four. Bob's fame led to death threats after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. By this time in 1968, Bob was a perennial all-star, and he was a leading voice for African Americans in Major League Baseball. And Bob found himself both shocked and dismayed on April 4th of that year, when the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Gibson was one of the first in the immediate aftermath to call for baseball to cancel all of its opening day games in response. The MLB's response was, well, we'll let the individual teams decide what they want to do. Bob immediately took that opportunity and did what he could in his city, and the Cardinals voted to postpone their opening day game until after the Reverend King's funeral. That night, when Gibson went back to his hotel, he was met there by an FBI agent who was waiting at his hotel room. They told Bob that they had received credible threats against his life earlier in that day. And Gibson was obviously shaken by both events uh, to lose uh, the Reverend King, a person he very much respected. Uh, and then in the same day, being told that he was also a target for assassination was a lot for him to handle. And he recalled that moment in his book, And uh, there was one quote that really stood out. He said, uh, I reeled from the impact of the assassination, the cold-blooded murder of the one man in my lifetime who had been able to capture the public's attention about racial injustice, break through some of the old social barriers, and raise the spirits and hopes of black people across the country, end quote. And Bob had to choose how to respond here. And this is really what this episode's all about this legacy of determination on his part to not let other people dictate what he did with his life. And he responded by, instead of hiding or uh, choosing not to play, uh, he decided to fuel that, that very justified anger over what had occurred and, and even the threat to his own life and everything that was going on in America during this time. And he just, he went on the war path in the way that he could, and he did it on the mound. He channeled it through his pitching. And in that 1968 season, he went 22-9 and with an ERA of 112. And in that same season, 
in June, Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated. And Bob, after that assassination in June, after it occurred, pitched five straight shutout games and 147 scoreless innings in a row. He finished that season as an all-star, a gold glover, the National League MVP, the National League Cy Young Award winner, and he led his Cardinals to the World Series. Sports reporters John Florio and Usi Shapiro summed up Bob Gibson's 1968 season in this way. Quote, He didn't speak out in the way that Ali or Brown did, but he contributed to the civil rights struggle the best way he could, by excelling on the baseball diamond. End quote. And for our final example, Bob used his star status to create an inclusive culture in both St. Louis and around the league. As Bob's stardom grew, so did his desire to see baseball rise higher as a sport for all people. And thanks to his leadership, the Cardinals of the 1960s, they became known as one of the most inclusive teams in sports. Bob was really the one who set that tone. He demanded management give equal respect to black, white, and Hispanic players. He led by example, and he spent time building off-field relationships with players like Orlando Cepeda and Tim McCarver. His outspoken desire to build that inclusive clubhouse really created a template for other teams around the league to do the same. And while it may not all have happened at the same time, that legacy continued on and we saw other clubs uh, learn from his example. Bob recalls those efforts that he spent, those, those things that were most important to him, those, those off-the-field uh, efforts. And he said in his biography, quote, The Cardinals were the rare team that not only believed in each other, but genuinely liked each other. As a team, we would simply not tolerate any sort of festering rancor between us, personal or racial. We brought our racial feelings out into the open, and we dealt with them. I'm confident I had a lot to do with it, and so did guys like White and Flood. None of us gave an inch to racism. The white players respected that, and in turn, we respected them. End quote. Even after retiring, Bob used his time that was spent on various coaching staffs to promote positive attitudes and color-free clubhouses. He often told people that out of the long list of accomplishments that he had, his greatest was bridging racial divides in baseball. It would have been very easy to focus on Bob's athletic achievements for this episode, because there are many. But that story has been told, and it's going to continue to be told. But his focus on championing equality and possessing that spirit of unshakable determination, that also deserves just as much attention. And thanks to Bob, today's MLB is better because of his work on and off the field. So here's to Hoot. He was an amazing man who every baseball fan should both admire and celebrate. Thanks so much for tuning in for another episode. And remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball. <laughs>